Hey, good evening, friends and family. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table, and uh, thanks for showing up tonight. Obviously, you know, well, I'm looking outside as if this is a real-time thing. I'm actually doing this Saturday morning. Forecast says it's going to be stormy, so we're kind of having to adjust. And the conundrum we're always caught in, and I'll be brief, the conundrum we're always caught in is like we could wait to the last minute and then try to like do a Mickey Mouse operation and piece together different elements like message announcements, all of it. But like odds are it's going to get messed up somehow with the tech if we go live stream. And so we figured let's name it a day before so we can actually put together some quality video where the communication is clear, the picture is crisp, et cetera, et cetera. So here we are. If it's not storming tomorrow night and I'm looking outside right now, I'm going to feel like an idiot. But ideally, the thunderstorms are um, very present. So turn your volume up, you know, right now so you can kind of overcome the noise of the storm outside. If you're not familiar with the person of Jeremiah, let me briefly catch you up to speed. The prophet Jeremiah, he received a call from God in about 625 BC, give or take a few, and was told by the Spirit to speak on behalf of the Lord and tell the people they need to shape up. You better shape up. That song, Jeremiah actually wrote that song. His task at hand was to be a prophet during the last days of the reigns of the kings of Judah. And so he spoke during the reigns of um, Josiah and Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Jeremiah was tasked with the impossible job of demanding that the people take seriously this offer of life that came straight from the desk of God that was sent out to spare them from death and the traps they were setting for themselves. And I say it was impossible because I know it was exhausting because nobody ever listened. Nobody wrote it down when he spoke. Nobody was typing like into their notes folder, like the things that he was saying. He was met consistently with shrugged shoulders, with apathetic, like, man, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Like your, your whole, like, if we don't change our ways, the earth is going to come to an end. It's all going to be over. It's just hot air. Like settle down, have yourself a drink and or take a nap. Take a nap, Jeremiah. It's not as bad as you're making it seem. This is gonna sound crazy to you, but the people in Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah, they tended to prefer um, like religious pageantry over like revelatory power. They were the kind of people that liked how it was more than liking how it actually is. And it was exasperating for Jeremiah because what Jeremiah would find out is that with every head that shook no and every shrugged shoulder that went up and down is that the kind of people he was tasked with speaking to were the kind of people who were so content with their cancer because they so despised the chemo. The cure was deemed to be worse than the disease. Can you imagine that? When you read the white space in between the black words in a text like the one that tells of Jeremiah's life, you just feel a heaviness. You feel a sense of exhaustion. Like, how did he do what he did? Um, and would I be able to do that? I don't know. I don't know if I could handle that level of stupidity that long. I don't know if I could go door to door begging people to take a vaccine and them looking at you like you're the idiot. I don't know if I could tell people like, seriously, you guys, if you continue on this path, you're headed to a place of destruction and then be like, destruction is, is paradise for us. I don't know how long I could do that job. There is no joy embedded in Jeremiah's job. And so I guess we really shouldn't be surprised when we don't find any joy in Jeremiah's life. You know, when it comes to preachers, Jeremiah is like old school. He's like, like a, a Baptist from the South. He's not preaching sermons on like how to live your best life now. He's more so concerned with um, turn or burn. 
He's not spending his evenings building a brand on Instagram. He's more so that guy that posts every now and then on Facebook. And when he does, it's the critical questions like, how do you like your eternity, smoking or non-smoking? That's just who Jeremiah is. That's who Jeremiah was. And you cannot blame him because he was tasked with an impossible job at an impossible time with an impossible people to boot. And if you read his life, you recognize that the people do boot him. They tear him apart. Like they just like publicly drag his name to the mud again and again and again. He's just, and yeah, he's faithful. Like he continues to speak up where he's been tasked with speaking. And there's this moment actually we get a glimpse in it in Jeremiah 20. You see it throughout, but in Jeremiah 20, you see almost like a glimpse into one of his journal entries where he says, I'm ridiculed all day long. Everybody mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out pro proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day. Because I talk, they're taking hits. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I've tried and can't do it. Won't be done. Damned if I do and damned if I don't. In many ways, and this might be a reach to some, but I'm going to say it all the same. Jeremiah of Israel reminds me of Dorothy Gale of Kansas. Yeah, that, that Dorothy Gale. The one from the dirty 30s of Dust Bowl, Kansas, who dreamed for a better world than the one she presently lived in. Like the old prophet who screamed at us from the Hebrew scriptures for justice and mercy, Dorothy Gale does the same thing as she finds her neighbor, the powerful Mrs. Gulch, in pursuit of destroying everything. Everything, which in Latin is the word toto. Now, just to be completely fair, to put down a dog for biting your butt in a time like this, that was normative behavior. That wasn't like this absurd request that, that the neighbor next door was making. But that's exactly the point. This is exactly the problem that the prophets face. What, what the rest of the world sees as slight misdeeds, the prophets see as grave injustices. The prophets see that you are trying to destroy Toto, everything. And all around you, you see good people like Auntie M and Uncle Henry just passively going like, well, that's just the way it is. That's how we do things around here. It's the way it's always been. Prophets say, no. There is a better way for us to be, and this isn't it. There is this fire in Dorothy Gale's bones that she can't shut up, nor can she shut down. She tries to at one point. She tries to run away, but she grows weary on the road and turns back home. Because she could see and she could sense what Jeremiah saw and what Jeremiah sensed. They both held this vision that recognized that there is a storm coming, and we are not ready for its arrival. Dorothy Gale knew that another Gale was on its way, and then it shows up. The twister touches down, and home is no longer where it once was. Nebuchadnezzar takes the Babylonians into the city, and the people are no longer home where they once were. For 18 months straight, Nebuchadnezzar leads the Babylonians into Jerusalem, where he just demolishes and destroys everything, and the city turns into dust. The political and social and religious leadership of Jerusalem, they were all led into exile, into Babylon, while the poor and the peasants were left behind in the city that is now dust. For 800 miles, these refugees walked from Jerusalem to Babylon, from Kansas to Oz. How many miles do you think you logged in 2021? What about 2020? I'm talking about the pandemic, but I'm also talking about your personal life. What kind of twister touched down on your story? What kind of 
king came into your city and how it was is no longer how it is. And your experience is now one of exile. Life was going this way and then this happened. You had a job and then they made cutbacks. Your child got sick and the doctors got quiet. Your parents were always married until that day when they weren't. You got pregnant on accident. You couldn't get pregnant on purpose. You were the high school hockey star celebrated by people all around you, and then you graduated. You thought your family was perfect, a rare exception to the rule, but then somebody started to tell the truth. And when they did, life no longer looks like it did before they spoke. The tornado has taken you elsewhere. Dorothy is now in Oz. Judah is in exile. And it's interesting because I understand that the parallels kind of cease here because one goes from a land of gray into a world of color while the other goes from a world of color and into the land of gray. The implications are still the same because both of the people who are in the new places, they still are longing for something that is behind them, something that was better back there. They both are stuck there clicking their heels saying there is no place like home. There is no place like home. There's no place like it was. There's no place like when she was still here. There's no place like before they spoke up. There's no place. There's nothing like it was. So now I'm here and I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm sad. I'm frustrated. Well, when can I go back? When can we return to there? When? There's this moment in the Psalms where they capture kind of that exile experience when the people who have been led to Babylon, they're sitting on the banks of the Babylonian river and their captors come up to the captured and they say, hey, why don't you guys start singing like you used to? We know that your city used to make a lot of good music. How about you sing some songs for them? And they're like, what are you talking about? Why would we sing right here? The Psalmist actually says, he says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while living in a foreign land. See, the exile, when they're in that new place, they're not gonna try to be palatable in a place of pain. They're gonna sing a song of lament, perhaps a song like this. I really admire the honesty and the integrity and the clarity of conviction that you see in the people on the banks of the river and you see Dorothy Gale in Kansas. I appreciate those who are actually able to name that where they are is not where they need to be, that there's something better than where they presently are, that they are not going to be palatable and polite with their pain, that something happened to them, and they're not just going to keep on keeping on with a stiff upper lip. That's not healthy. And so I admire anybody who has the courage to actually be where you actually are. But do you know who I even admire more? The ones who get put in a place of pain and who refuse to wait passively for somebody to pull them out. Those who keep working, those who keep trying new things and following the yellow brick road, trusting that even if I didn't put myself into this mess, there is a part that I can play to get myself up out of it. See, there's this temptation that happens in life, and I've seen it in my life, I've seen it in other lives where when life comes in, when the tornado interrupts your regularly scheduled programming and life puts you on pause, your living has to come to a pause. There's this temptation to believe that when you are removed from what was, that place behind you, you can only resume your life once you get back there. That's just not true. Because you can't go back to where you were. The toothpaste can't be put back in the bottle. We can't go back to before the pandemic came in. You can't go back to before that person walked out. Each of us might have 17 different places in our minds right now where we would rather be, but that does little to stifle the reality of the fact that we can only be where we are right now.
Life is not static, and the more that you live, the more that you will leave, and the more you'll be left. And if we refuse to unclench our fingers and all of our fixations on what we no longer have, we're going to miss out on all that is still here, all that we still hold. This is the thing actually that's tripping up the scarecrow. You don't catch it in the movie, but you see it in the book. There's this moment where he sees Dorothy longing for home, for Kansas, the gray world behind her. And he says to her this, he says, I, for the life of me, I just can't understand why you should wish to leave this beautiful country and go back to the dry gray place you call Kansas. And the girl answers, that is because you have no brains. No matter how dreary and gray our homes are, we people of flesh and blood would rather live there than in any other country, be it ever so beautiful. There is no place like home. The scarecrow sighed. Eh, of course, I can't understand it. If your heads were stuffed with straw like mine, you would probably all live in the beautiful places, and then Kansas would have no people at all. It is fortunate for Kansas that you all have brains. <clears throat> I like that. Like Dorothy in the Exiles, like us, our first response to an experience of exile is to immediately reach for an exit, to run for our lives, to press rewind, edit, undo, and go back to what was. It's a natural response. It's totally normal. It's what we do. We're all just looking for somebody to say that that's what we can do. For somebody to say, you know, that the pandemic will be over when it gets warmer outside. Then we can go back. Then everything will be like it was. Despite the fact that people were suffering in the normalcy of what was, that's, that's, that's of no consequence to us right now. We just want to go back. That's, that's kind of our MO and our posture throughout this pandemic, which is why it's no surprise to me that if you go to Jeremiah 28, you get later on in the midst of the city being crumbled into dust, the people are still gathering in this barely standing temple and there is this false prophet named Hananiah that rises up and he says, in two years time, God is going to restore us. We're going to be back on our feet. Everything will be as it was. Just give me two years tops and um, we'll pretend like this whole thing never happened. This is a momentary glitch in the system, but all is well and all will be well. Amen and amen. And the people love it. I mean, of course, they're vibing with it. Somebody starts breaking out in Marley's. Every little thing is going to be all right. But the one person in the room who refuses to sing the song is the old man prophet, Jeremiah, who says, this guy is lying to you. I get that you want, you know, the beautiful lie over the ugly truth, but that is two years time. I have a word from the Lord and God says that you will not be returning to Jerusalem, that things will not be fully restored for 70 years time. Not two, 70. Jeremiah says this guy is only saying what he's saying because he refuses to see all that is. He's not looking at the loss. He's not paying attention to the deficits we've experienced. His future of where we are going requires a divorce from the reality of where we now are. He refuses to see that in our bodies and in our collective body, we can't go back. The city doesn't just get built in two years. The clocks don't just go back to 2019. And so you have to see the losses for what they are. You have to see the, the businesses that have been ruined the past few years. You have to read the stats about all the school kids who've been forced to go to online school and a lot of them are not even partaking in it there. 
we have to take account of all the steep drops in preventative medical procedures that we've seen over the past few years, such as mammograms and pap smears and colonoscopies and vaccinations. We have to be aware of the mental health crisis that has been building since the very start of this pandemic. And what about all the evictions that have left and are leaving thousands of people homeless despite the CDC's moratorium being in place? And what about all the people who are locked up in prisons in close encounter with one another despite the incredible risk that, that poses to them due to the virus? And I'm just touching on a few of the downstream effects because of this pandemic, and there's a lot more that still could be named. We have to acknowledge that we are never going to be the same again, but we also simultaneously have to say that we will not stay here. Yes, we cannot go back, but yes, we also can build forward. As Adia Benton, who is an anthropologist at Northwestern who studies epidemics, she recently said that at some point we're forced to think about the things we could do without. It's possible we may see absolute change in what it is that we do. It's about the things that we thought we never imagined or we thought impossible or we thought were temporary. But I also wonder if this is an opportunity to move to new ways of thinking, new ways of being in the world with each other. And what she's saying there is an echo of what Jeremiah said thousands of years ago. Jeremiah says that if you want to get out of the mess that you're in, if you actually want to leave the waste, then roll up your sleeves and get to work. Jeremiah 29, 5-7, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Don't play it safe. Don't back down from your call to be all that you are called to be and to live the fullest lives that you possibly can. Don't decrease. Don't settle now just because you took a hit. And also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You can't read those words without hearing it twice, that when the twister came and took you down, it was the spirit that was there to pick you up. I carried you into exile. I carried you into Babylon. I carried you into that place that you didn't want to go. I carried you there and I have not left you there. So don't leave me now. Live. Jeremiah gives very clear instructions on how to proceed. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat the food, get married, make babies, and also pray for Babylon. This is, this is really like Genesis 1 all over again. You're in a place of nothingness. The void is vast. But all that is is a blank canvas. When you're in a place of nothingness, God has everything that God needs to create something beautiful. So Jeremiah says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat great food, have great sex, get married, all of those things. Think about this and consider what he's saying. House building and agricultural concerns suggest a lengthy sojourn. They suggest a settled life and not a weekend stay at the Holiday Inn. This is not a dine or ditch thing. This is not a thing you need to wait it out. You need to plant some roots. You're going to be here for a minute. And so accept the terms of where you are. Find somebody to love. Make some beautiful babies with them. Build a house. Plant good food. You're not going anywhere for a while. So stop running away as if you were. The question of how long will we be here is no longer the right question. Let me say that again. The question of how long, when's it going to be over, that's not the right question anymore. The question is about how are you going to be now that you're here. Because your kids are going to grow up here. Your kids are going to get married here. The kids are going to make babies here. Life is moving forward here. 
not there. Every new story that we have in our scripture is a story of something new starting in a story that has grown old. A beginning that comes in the midst of an end. And it always happens when a people embrace what is instead of longing for what was. And this is the good news that Jeremiah offers. He says that while the city of God may have burned in the fire, God did not die in the flames. You have not been abandoned. When you were tossed into that place that you did not want to go, God carried you the whole way through. You were never forsaken. You were never abandoned. You weren't alone there and you weren't alone here. God carried you. God carries you. And so here's the ask on you. Jeremiah is saying, do not passively wait for somebody to pull you out of exile. Proactively participate in the place where you are. You may have left your home, but God has made a home in you. And so everything you need is already here. Look for it, because otherwise we'll forget it. We'll be like the scarecrow who's convinced that he needs a brain, yet despite the fact that throughout the whole journey we hear his creative ideas and strategies. Or we'll be like the tin man who wished he had a heart, despite the fact that there are tears streaming down his face at all times throughout the movie. Or we'll be like the, the lion who is, who is so thirsty for courage to come into him, despite the fact that prior to its arrival, he is the only one who steps up to fight the witch. All of our stories begin east of Eden, but Eden begins in our stories when we recognize that we never left the garden. That it's still here. We see it all when we wake up next to Dorothy from her dream, and we see that the hired hands that help out on Uncle Henry and Auntie M's farm, they are more than that. She is recognizing that no longer are they just these nameless, faceless, hired hands to help out on the family farm. There is a lion and a scarecrow and a tin man standing around my room. All these people who are wrestling through their own issues of identity and story and calling. And and when Dorothy starts to see Kansas through the light of Oz, color breaks into the room. I want color to break into your room. And so listen to Dorothy and listen to Jeremiah. We accept where we are and we work for where we're going. Build, settle, plant, eat, make babies, drink good wine, start that company, write that book, run that race, make some friends, be a friend, confess your faults, confess your hopes. Cry, laugh, pray for Minneapolis, pray for the table. Yes, Jerusalem is on fire. Yes, the tornado really did come. But God is not dead and neither are we, so we will live. I'll close with this. Uh, words from Frederick Beekner, my favorite writer. Um, he says this, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things are going to happen. But don't be afraid. I love you guys. We'll see you not next Sunday, but the Sunday that follows.